me, please, in Daniel chapter 9. We're going to look at a long, lengthy section in Daniel's prophecy this morning. It is a unit, uh, and I think it's best to handle a unit as it appears in the text. But Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse number 24. I heard of a clamor, someone who harvests clams from the ocean for a living, was having his harvest destroyed by starfish. The starfish would latch onto the clams and tear them open and, and eat the uh, clams. It was wrecking his, um, his business. And so he thought that he would take care of the starfish by cutting them up and throwing them back out into the ocean. Well, he did that and found that all he did was that he multiplied the starfish because they're able to regenerate from uh, the cuts and pieces that they were. So instead of improving it, he made things much more difficult. Now, the starfish then went through a powerful affliction and ended up having a promotion from it in many ways. And that's what we find in Daniel chapter 9 and 10 and 11, our text this morning. Here, what happens and takes place here is that Daniel hears that God will create Israel's glory out of its grief, Israel's majesty out of its misery, and Israel's triumph out of its trouble. Now, I want to look, by way of introduction, at two broad ways of categorizing this text. One is troubles for Israel. We find in chapter 9, verse 7, for example, the trouble of Judah's exile. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off and all the countries to which you've driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. And so this references the exile beginning in 605 and going down to 597, 587. There are three stages of it. Then in verse 26, we find Jerusalem's ruin. It says there, and after the 62 sevens or 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come the Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So there's another trouble in Israel, Judah's ruin. Verse number 27, we find uh, here Israel's persecution. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, or one seven, one set of seven. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even till the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Well, that's Israel's persecution. Then we get to chapter 10, verse 13, where Daniel finds that he has a delay in his prayer request by three weeks. And we find out why in verse number 13. Uh, an angel appears to him and says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. The demonic prince of Persia stood in my angelic way, for 21 days. If we could pull back the veil of human living and look into the spirit world, we would find angels and demons doing constant battle with one another. Now, I don't know how comfortable you are using language like that. I don't think we, we need to obsess over it. But the worst mistake is to deny it. Jesus believed in it entirely. And he knew better than anyone else about these things. And so there's spiritual warfare. And then we get into a very lengthy chapter that is full of probably more prophetic detail than any other single chapter in the Bible. And I'm not going to go through all the details this, uh, this morning, but chapter 11 
uh, verses 1 through 45, the entire chapter, we find enormous, rampant political instability among the nations. In verses 1 and 2, we find that regarding Persia. In verses 3 and 4, we find that with ancient Greece under Alexander the Great and then the four kings that received the division, the four divisions of his kingdom. Chapter five, or chapter 11, verses 5 through 20, we find battles between those called the king of the north and the king of the south. Well, what in the world do you mean by that? You could go all over the world and, and have a king north and king south in this era. Well, it's north of Israel and south of Israel. Uh, two of the kingdoms that came out of the division of Alexander the Great's kingdom, namely Syria and Egypt, with Israel packed in between, and that's why it's included here, because they would fight back and forth, and Israel would be caught in the middle. And there are several cycles of warfare between Syria and Egypt, the kingdom of the north, Syria, the king of the south, Egypt, that take place in verses 1 through 35. And then we find... Um, a uh, pickup in uh, verse 21 of chapter 11 of, again, Antiochus Epiphanes, someone that is a preview of the Antichrist who appears in chapter 11, verse 36, to the end of the chapter. There are troubles everywhere you turn in this section. And look at the counsel that is given to Daniel in verse number 12 of chapter 10. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel. Do not fear. Well, why is that? Well, that moves us on to the triumphs of Israel's. Israel's triumphs. Chapter 9, verse 24 mentions a triumph. There is here the elimination of sinfulness and the guilt that comes with it. Verse number Verse number uh, 24, it says 70 weeks or 70 sevens, sets of sevens are determined for you, for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins. And so God would bring to an end his judgment over Judah uh, that brought about the exile. And in just a few short years, if not sooner, uh, Judah was going to be released to return to the promised land, and that is precisely what happened in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe that. Then there is the rebuilding of Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 25. Uh, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command, or the, the king's edict, to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there should be seven weeks or seven sevens and 62 weeks or 62 sevens. Well, this is talking about the entire rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now this edict in verse number 25 went out in about 455. And from that time to 49 years later, all of Jerusalem was rebuilt. Now it only took 52 days to rebuild the walls, but the whole infrastructure of the city and the temple and everything that went into the makeup of the city of Jerusalem, it was rebuilt in these 49 years. And um, what we find here as well is the death of the Messiah. So elimination of sin, rebuilding Jerusalem, the death of the Messiah. And then Daniel has an experience with the Christ before he's ever incarnated in Bethlehem. And it says in verse number 5 of chapter 10 that Daniel, he says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl. 
his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Daniel hits the bottom emotionally. Israel is about to hit the bottom. And when Daniel reaches the bottom, Jesus Christ is there. There are many of you who could say, I've been to the bottom and I found down there there is solid ground because that's where Christ is. And that's what Daniel found here in the text. And then we find in chapter 11, verse 45, that despite the rampant misery instigated by the Antichrist, we find verse 45, And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end no one will help him. Just a brief mention, a brief word. General Longstreet, in the 19th century, wrote his memoirs. He'd been married 40 years. His wife bore him 10 children. And not once did he mention her in his memoirs. Not one time. She was so insignificant to him, he did not find it necessary to mention her in his memoirs. That's about what we have here in verse 45. The work of the Antichrist and his elimination is such a small thing to God. He hardly mentions it at all. He has utter contempt and disrespect for the Antichrist. And so, these are the triumphs of Israel. God advanced Israel on the interstate system of her afflictions. Now, sweet people, that reminds me of what a Puritan pastor, Richard Sibb, said one time. He said, Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. Afflictions are as needful to our souls as food is to the body. In other words, we need afflictions to move forward with God. And so what we've got to do with every affliction is that we've got to do with it what those who came before us here at Beach Haven did with this worship center in 1969. They built the worship center they had a dedicatory service, and they gave it to God and dedicated it to Him to worship Him and to do so biblically and rightly. So your affliction then becomes like a worship center. Uh, we, we do baby dedications here. We do parent-child dedications here at Beach Haven. And we take these families, and on their own, they decide to dedicate themselves to God, to sanctify themselves to God, to raise their children in the admonition of the Lord. And so what God is calling on us to do is to take every one of our afflictions and treat it like a worship center, uh, to treat it like a family, uh, to treat it like a Bible. Do you know of anything sacred and sanctified in your life? Well, if you've got a Bible, yes. If you have uh, dedicated yourself to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, then yes. Uh, if, if you're worshiping here in a sanctified worship center that we give unto God. And God is urging each and every one of us to do the same with our afflictions. And when we do that with our afflictions, God gives us a spiritual promotion. In other words, spiritual progress is made with sanctified afflictions. And they are as needful to the soul as food is to the body. I've got to tell you, we're not probably going to move forward. And we're not so spiritual that we would make progress unless we had difficulties and afflictions. So the question is, how may I receive spiritual promotion from an affliction? 
Well, there, there is one word that I think is going to help us that I want to articulate in several ways this morning. And in chapter 10, verse 12, he said to Daniel, Daniel, do not fear, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. Daniel sought to understand. It appears again in verse 14. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. Understand. Chapter 11, verse number 32 and 33. It says there, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. They'll have spiritual progress, spiritual promotion. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. It is very, very important that in a moment or a period of emotional turmoil and tempest that you engage your mind in the midst of it all. There are things we've got to understand. And when we go through difficulties and afflictions, it is an emotional experience. There is emotional uproar that rises. But emotions must never be the master but always the servant when we're going through afflictions. They've got to be. We must be the kind of people that keep our minds and understand and know, especially God and His ways. Well, what do I need to know? Well, the text is clear. One, understand the precision of God's timing. Verses 24 through 27 make this very clear. Now, this is one of the most detailed and significant yet confusing portions of apocalyptic literature anywhere in the Bible. Daniel here hears from God that there are sets of seven, in the English versions, weeks. The New Living Translation actually gets this a little better. It can be translated weeks here, but it's better to translate it sevens. A week is nothing more than a set of seven. And he says there are sets of sevens, 70 of them in fact, that are going to explain large portions of Israel's history. There is first of all, in verse 24, a set of um, uh, 24 and 25, a set of seven sevens. Well, seven times, and, and we understand these are years, seven times seven years is 49 years. And that's the time it would take from 14, uh, 445 when Nehemiah was commanded to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city in its entirety. Now, Nehemiah merely did the walls. Zerubbabel and Ezra built the uh, temple and uh, others built the rest of the city that took a period of 49 years and then there is a set of 62 sevens or 62 times seven years 432 years and that measures the time that Christ would come and that he would be crucified and so what we have here is that we've got 434 years from the time Jerusalem was finished to the time Jesus would be crucified now uh, just to be real clear, this is based upon the Jewish calendar, which was uh, based upon uh, the moon, not our solar calendar. And then, of course, the Gregorian calendar was off, and so Jesus was born sometime between 2 and 6 B.C. Uh, or A.D. And so uh, you've got to keep those things in mind. But if you calculate according to those facts, you'll find that it's precisely when Christ came into the world. Well, that leaves one more set of seven that he mentions in verse number 
27. And this is the work of the Antichrist, that he confirms a covenant with Israel for one set of seven, the tribulation period, but in the middle of it, he brings to an end the religious practice of Israel, which implies the rebuilding of the temple on the spot where Solomon first put it. Now, I know what's there now. But you must understand, there are warehouses full of material to build and rebuild the temple. And in order for the temple to be reused, it has to be sanctified with the blood of a red heifer. Well, guess what? There's a rancher in central Texas breeding red heifers, getting ready for that day when the temple's rebuilt and they're ready to sanctify the altar. Prophetically, these things are put together and ready to go into action when God gets ready to implement His end-time program. Ladies and gentlemen, this is precise dating of major events in biblical prophecy, and God is willing to announce them beforehand. I'll say to you, I've read the Quran, and the Quran has nothing like this. The Vengeti of, uh, of uh, the Vengeti, those sacred writings, they don't have anything like this. The Upanishads, they have nothing like this. Only the Bible engages in detailed, measurable, specific prophecy. And in that way, it's putting its proverbial neck upon the line. And the Scripture does so over and over and over again. And we'll find more of that in chapter 11. In just these few chapters, you've got detailed, measurable, specific prophecy because the Bible is an excellent foundation for our faith. And that's what the text is teaching us. Now, this is the precision of God's timing. Those who transform afflictions in promotion into promotions understand something about God in His timing. That is, God has His own precise timing and He relinquishes it to no one not even the suffering. God is never late. God is never early. God is always on time. And those who are suffering have got to be willing to walk with God and not get ahead of Him like Abraham. Do you recall Abraham in Genesis chapter 16? I know most of you were not there, but uh, he got uh, a little too eager to have a, an heir. And so he did the worldly thing, what other wealthy and uh, powerful people did in that day. His wife, uh, Sarah, gave to him her maidservant, Hagar. And they, uh, Hagar conceived after time with Abraham. And Ishmael came into the world. And it was years later, 13 years later, finally that Isaac was born. And Ishmael was mocking and scorning Isaac one day. And the Lord spoke to Abraham and said, he and his mother have got to leave. Isaac is the son of promise. I'll take care of Ishmael and make him a great nation, but he'll always be at war with his brothers. And he was also at war with Isaac. Do you know that we are still living with Abraham's impatience today? Did you realize that? The Middle East has been a boiling and actually exploding cauldron of confusion, hatefulness, and war ever since. Simply because Abraham was not willing to wait on God. You know, similar tragedy, personal tragedy has come to many. Some end up getting impatient with dating and date the wrong person. Impatient with marriage, marry the wrong person. Impatient with prosperity. And so they become vulnerable to get-rich-quick schemes and have ruined themselves and embarrassed themselves 
and ruin their opportunity to do something great for God. Understand the precision of God's timing. God owns time and He's not relinquishing it to anybody. The best counsel is to wait on the Lord. But then, understand not only that, but understand the reliability of God's Word. The detail of Scripture is a remarkable thing. We have considered that already. But I want you to take down and keep in heart and mind forever and ever that if it were not for Scripture, we would not know how God remodels afflictions into promotions. Scripture alone gives us that knowledge. We wouldn't learn that anywhere else. And without Scripture, we do not understand these afflictions. And we prosper in afflictions only to the extent... Only to the extent that we know God's Word. Ignorance of the Bible creates more confusion. Knowledge of the Bible brings comfort and light. Now, I say that because when you are in an affliction, you're going to be tempted and vulnerable to give up on God. Do the exact opposite. Do not pray less. Seek Him more. Do not read less. Read more. Do not attend less. Attend more. Do the exact, the exact opposite of your intuition and immerse yourself more into Him because you will prosper in afflictions only to the extent that you know the Word of God. And then third, the third thing to understand is to understand the surprises of God's affections. The surprises of God's affections. God's very clear in verse number 13 of chapter 10 that Daniel is beloved. And then chapter 10, verse number 20, Daniel is indeed beloved. I remember after finishing seminary, Sherry Michelle and I went to serve with a centrifuge youth camp staff at Carson Newman College in Jefferson City, Tennessee. And I left a church that we loved. When I got there, I felt like I stepped into heaven. It was in North Texas and ranch country. We were living in a home seven miles outside of town. Our house was three-quarters of a mile off the road with the creek 100 yards behind. It was a veritable Garden of Eden experience for the both of us. It was wonderful. On a full moon, we heard coyotes yelping and uh, uh, making all sorts of racket in the backyard. It was the perfect place for a young couple to start a married life. The church was not a difficult church at all. Uh, people had uh, very warm and generous expectations, and we had a great youth ministry. Things went well. I had all the youth workers I wanted. I had all of the parents and their support that I would ever need, and it was a marvelous place to be. But we felt like God wanted us to do youth camp for the summer in hopes that before the end of the summer, some church would invite us to come serve on the staff there. Well, we got into the summer, and nobody's calling nobody's asking for my resume. And we get into the summer, and I get a bit discouraged. And I uh, look at Michelle, and I say, now listen, I have uh, given up my home state. I have given up all of my contacts. In fact, I was traveling so much as a youth minister, I had to ask our personnel committee to limit me the number of times I could be out. That way I would have a good excuse for turning down invitations to come speak. I gave all that up. I was not known in the southeast United States. Nobody knew anything about me. And I didn't believe in promoting myself 
In ministry, you don't promote your resume. You don't promote your service as you might in the secular world. Secular world, that's fine. In ministry, you're a bit more modest. You don't communicate that. They come after you. You don't go after them. And I gave up all of that. And, in fact, what was ringing in my ears is that before the summer started, her daddy asked us, well, what are your plans when the summer is over and youth camp is over? And she said, well, we don't know. So he said, effectively then, at the end of the summer, you are unemployed riffraff. And that kept ringing in my mind. Kept ringing in my mind. And I have to be, I have to be honest with you. I got tired of waiting. I thought, I've never had to wait for an invitation or any consideration like this for this long in my entire life. And my resume had been out there for some time. Others had asked for it and circulated it. I didn't circulate it myself, but no churches were calling. No committees were calling. My goodness, nobody at all. And one afternoon, I got so frustrated with God, I walked in to our room where we were staying, and I said, I don't understand. I have given up everything that was precious to me, everything meaningful, and this is how God treats His servants? What kind of way is this to run a life? And again, in the back of my mind is unemployed riffraff. Well, I put on a good face the next day. I went back out. I had my backpack with me. And I had a folder in it with resumes, just in case. And I got out, and a man who knew a friend of Sherry Michelle's was on a search committee at a church with Michelle's friend. And he came up to me and asked me, he said, I understand that you might be open to talking with us about coming to pastor First Baptist Church, Kingstree. Do you have a resume? I said, yeah, I've got one right here. Well, he laughed and giggled, and I gave it to him, and things developed so that starting in September of that year, we went and served, and I began pastoring at First Baptist Kingstree, and I've been living in the trajectory of that ministry and service the whole time of my ministry. I wish I could tell you more about it, but there were three older deacons that took me under their wing that taught me everything they knew about serving a local church, and ladies and gentlemen, it was a benedictory experience. It was a benediction to my soul. What I want you to understand is that God has some surprises when He loves us. God does not always love the way that we expect. And what I want you to understand is this. Your afflictions do not mean that God does not love you. They might mean He loves you enough to put you through some stress and strain to produce the best you that God intends for you to be. C.S. Lewis said this, God loves us, God loves you as you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. So understand that God's surprising love, if you'll understand that, you'll know that afflictions do not enter your life because God does not love you. Afflictions may enter your life precisely because He does. Understand the surprise of God's affections. But then finally, understand the expanse of God's knowledge. In chapter 11, verses 1 through, well, the whole chapter, there is stunning detail. Stunning detail that only a prophet could deliver. I want to point out just a couple of verses here about the detail that is found here. Look at verse number 2 of chapter 11 about Persia. And now I will tell you the truth. 
Behold, three more kings, and this is the angel speaking to Daniel, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. Well, that's entirely true. That's exactly what happened after the time of Daniel. There was Cambyses, there was Smyrtus, there was Darius, and there was Xerxes, and you know of Xerxes because of his relationship with Esther, and Xerxes was far wealthier than them all. Now look at verse number 6. And at the end of some years, they shall join forces. In other words, the king of the north and the king of the south, they're going to make peace with one another. They're tired of all the war. It won't last, but they attempt to do so. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. And that's precisely what happened. The king of the south of Egypt, in Egypt sent his daughter in a political marriage to the king of the north. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. That is precisely historically what happened. Ptolemy is ruling the kingdom of Egypt from the south, and um, Antiochus, the kingdom of Syria, from the north. Now Ptolemy wanted to make peace with Antiochus up north and so he gave his daughter Bernice to Antiochus to marry but he had to divorce his wife first and only then would he allow Bernice's daughter to marry Antiochus. Well they did but the ex-wife murdered them both by poisoning them. Is precisely what happened. They did not retain their authority. So there is detail and specificity in this prophecy, and I think the beginnings of motivation for country music. But uh, in any case, this is God's knowledge in the text. Now, as you desire for a, an affliction to become a promotion, know this. God knows every detail of every realm of, of life. God's mind dwells, in fact, in a realm that is too exalted for us to even contemplate. You will never figure out some difficulties and afflictions. God has them all figured out, and that's what matters. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. The Lord makes very clear, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Those who witness God transform their afflictions into promotions are those who often remind themselves, God, you know what you're doing. And they're satisfied with that. Now speaking of smart afflictions, one of the afflictions that uh, each of us needs to engage when we're young is to make sure that we save for retirement. There'll come a day when we'll need to support ourselves over what we made when we were younger. And that's simply a matter of putting a little away over time for a long time until the end. And the best way to invest is to diversify, to have stocks and bonds and property as well. That's the best way to do so to diversify those kinds of investment. In other words, go through an affliction now so that at retirement you'll have a promotion. And diversify those investments. If one area doesn't do well, perhaps the other will. If one is down, the other is up. The other up, the other may be down, may be steady. But diversification is very wise when it comes to that. 
That's true for retirement on earth. That is not true for what takes place on the other side of the grave. When it comes to the other side of the grave, now you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ and invest all of your faith in Him. Don't diversify it. Do not place any faith in your own virtue. Do not place any faith in your own works. Do not place any faith in your spiritual heritage of your parents and grandparents or your denomination or any other area of reality. All of your faith must be placed in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. God has no patience with diversification of faith at all. Would you place your faith entirely in Him in the hands of Him who takes sanctified afflictions and turns them into spiritual promotions? In just a moment, we'll sing a song. And as we sing, we're going to invite you to come. And staff will be here to help you with any spiritual need that you have. We want to ask you to come and make a decision for Christ that God is placing on your heart. Some of you need to give your heart and life to Christ and invest all of your faith in Him, none other. In fact, you need to repudiate other possible investments. I'll tell you, they're all fake and false. The only one that is true is the one certified by the resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's the decision you need to make. Others of you, God wants to become part of this church here at Beach Haven. We're going to pursue the mission and the vision of Christ and serve Him. We want to ask you to move not only your letter, but your life here to this place. There may be an affliction that you need to pray about. Bring a friend. Come by yourself. Come to the altar. Give it to God. Sanctify the affliction and watch God turn it into a spiritual promotion. Would you stand with me quickly and let's pray about it and ask God to do a neat work with your afflictions today. Father, thank you for the opportunity to seek you and to turn to you. And we give to you this time. We pray that Christ would be magnified above and beyond all that we could ever ask or think. I pray for friends to invest all of their faith in one direction into your crucified and resurrected Son. I pray, O oh God, that you would move upon friends today to become part of Beach Haven, to follow you in baptism or to move their, move their membership here to Beach Haven. God, others have afflictions that they need to turn over to you. They need to do it with a friend or with a spouse or with a family member, or they need to do it alone. I pray that you'd give them the courage and the heart and the faith to do so now. In Jesus' name we pray, and for His sake, always, amen. Would you come? Please come.